Hi everybody, good evening. Um, it's fantastic to see so many of you uh, turning out at uh, such relatively short notice for this event, um, but I'm not surprised at all. Um, my name's Charlie Beckett, I'm the director of POLIS, which is the uh, journalism think tank within the Media and Communications Department here at the London School of Economics. Um, I, I am really, really pleased that uh, we've got Alec Ross here tonight because um, I'm sure a lot of you have, have got these issues in your head. They're on our TV screens when we look at what's happening uh, in places like Tunisia uh, and Egypt and currently even in Libya. Uh, the role of communications uh, in politics, in diplomacy, has just absolutely become the red-hot issue over the last 12 months. And I know Alex is going to look at the whole gamut of things from uh, even WikiLeaks, perhaps. Um, What's WikiLeaks? That's right. <laughs> I think, you've, I think you've, you, you closed it down, I think. No. Um, Alex is an, an interesting man for many reasons. I mean, partly from what he's doing now, but um, I think it is uh, an interesting fact about uh, the State Department that it is br he's brought somebody in whose, whose background was in uh, not-for-profit work uh, around uh, using uh, communications for justice and education. Somebody who uh, founded the, was it the, the laptop for every backpack? Is that the? There was a, a paper. A paper, there yeah, was the one paper. E one Economy was my nonprofit. Yeah, and I guess the, lap the laptop would now be an iPhone, <laughs> uh, an iPhone in every like lunchbox or, or something. something. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then uh, worked on the Obama uh, campaign, which again famously um, put the idea of social media uh, into a political context. And then uh, I think one of the, mo the more turn your mobiles off. Then the then the uh, lovely quote from Alex talking about if Paul Revere uh, was uh, charging down Main Street now, he would be tweeting. Um, and th this was something of a um, stirred things up a little bit and got a bit of a reaction. And then Wiki, when WikiLeaks came along, people said, well, there you go. Um, and some of the negative reactions of that, people said, well, there you go, that your cyber-utopianism um, has been shown to be uh, rather fragile. And then the analysis of uh, the net delusionist uh, Evgeny Moritsov showing how authoritarian regimes use the same technology to clamp down on people. There you go, they said, uh, your optimism around these technologies is misplaced. And then, then we saw what happened this year, and again, I think that has put absolutely on the agenda this, this whole idea of what is the power of social media uh, to affect change or to give voice to people around the world. And I guess what really interests us is what the politicians and the government will do uh, in reaction to that. And tonight we've got somebody who can tell us exactly uh, what the American government is going to do. Great, Alan. thank you. Well, thank you all for uh, taking the time to uh, participate this evening. This is an awful big treat for me, and um, you know, the London School of Economics is a, is a rightfully revered institution, and, and Charlie, I appreciate the invitation to be here tonight. I am here tonight trying to be the proper diplomat with my white shirt, my red tie, and my pinstripe suit. I'm making, you'll have to forgive me, I'm trying very hard to make my transition from my, my previous life as an activist working to use technology to fight poverty, which I'd done for the previous 10 plus years, and now trying to be a proper diplomat. And tonight what I really want to do is talk about how people like myself, people who were part of Barack Obama's change agenda, who more often than not came from the NGO sector or from political activism, are now trying to shake up the world of the striped pants diplomat. And people of my generation and younger, um, more often than not, grew up using tools. For certain of us, it came later than others. For most of you who are here tonight, you probably got using, you've probably used these tools at a far younger age than myself. Um, but part of what we wanted to do beginning January of 2009 when Barack Obama became president was to figure out how we could use these tools, which I, I imagine so many of you agree to be powerful, and make it part of a change agenda. And from my standpoint, there was no place that needed a change agenda more 
than America's foreign policy. Um, and so let me just sort of say from the outset that what we're trying to do with 21st century statecraft is not about technology. It's about foreign policy. You know, I, f I frankly don't care that much about technology in and of itself. You know, I was a, I was a history major. You know, I care about fighting poverty. Um, but what I, what I and others have come to realize is that if you want to fight poverty in the context of the present day, if you want to change foreign policy, if you want to change politics in the context of the present moment, then you have to figure out how, to the greatest extent possible, you can harness information networks in service of, of that agenda. And so even though much of what we're associated with in 21st century statecraft are, you know, the tweeting and the mobiles and the technology itself, what we're really trying to focus on are foreign policy outcomes and how to leverage technology to get to those desired foreign policy outcomes. Um, another point that I want to make at the outset is about the degree to which we are pretty clear-eyed about both the promise and peril uh, made possible by technology within the context of the present moment. When Hillary Clinton first began speaking about technology and, and information networks in the context of our foreign policy, you know, she, she herself noted that these things could be used for good or ill. She likened it to nuclear power, which could be used to either fuel a city or destroy it. She likened our information networks to steel, which could either build a machine gun or a hospital. One thing that is not subject to, to debate is the degree to which these tools are wildly disruptive. And for somebody like myself, disruption in and of itself is kind of fun, and it's kind of a good thing. I mean, especially somebody like myself who had been so frustrated during the eight years of the Obama administration, the word disruption went from having a ne an implicitly negative connotation to, in my mind, an implicitly positive connotation. And one of the things that we've seen sort of across industries and across the world, regardless of what you're doing, more likely than not, your world, your communications, your work life is being severely disrupted by the changes in information communications technology. And what we've seen quite recently in the Middle East certainly affirms that, where we see this you know, sort of potent brew of technological, economic, and demographic changes coming together at a moment and creating a sort of tipping point such that the disruption and the changes take place very quickly um, and very powerfully. Um, a lot of people and a lot of people who frankly are non-native to the internet have, have, have been slow sometimes to understand why these tools are so disruptive. For many of you, I'm sure that, that this is all, all old hat, but the way that I describe the nature of the disruption caused by, by communications technology is really based on changes happening in three spheres of our life that are all now converging over a common platform. So if we, if we think about infrastructure, the means of economic transportation, and go back 300 years and think about its evolution, 18th century infrastructure was ports. 19th century infrastructure was railways. 20th century infrastructure was highways. 21st century infrastructure, broadband networks. Let's go back 150 years and think about the evolution of communications. We've largely gone from letter writing to the telegraph to the telephone to the internet. Think about mass media, something that, that is also very central in our life. And think about it in the context of the last 90 years. You can see an evolution from the newspaper, to the radio, to the television, to the internet. So it's, it's part of what's causing the spectacular disruptions right now is this sort of triple paradigm shift 
where the means of economic transportation, our, our principal means of communication and our principal means of mass media are all now riding over broadband networks. And for diplomats the world around, this has been incredible, this has been jarring in many respects. Because statecraft, you know, that which we diplomats do, has been something that's been practiced with a lot of the a lot of consistency, so to speak, over the past several hundred years. And now we see our entire world roiled, uh, disrupted by the changes happening uh, throughout society by virtue of this by virtue of this uh, triple paradigm shift. So I wanted to give just a couple quick examples of, of some fairly contemporary ways in which uh, communications technology is disrupting uh, our foreign policy. So one example, sort of one very happy, positive example, is a program that a handful of 30-some-year-old diplomats put in place in the hours after the earthquake in Haiti. Uh, when the earthquake took place in Haiti, it was a little bit before 5 p.m., so sort of late afternoon, early evening. And Hillary Clinton was on an airplane headed from Hawaii to Papua New Guinea. She never made it to Papua New Guinea. Um, and we realized at that moment just how severe and how awful uh, the earthquake was. And the Secretary's admonishment to us was that by the following morning, when people were having their first cup of coffee and hearing about this for the first time, she wanted us to do something right then. Um, that she wanted something to happen right then where the American people could do something and do something real to uh, respond to uh, the tragedy in Port-au-Prince and in Haiti. And so just a couple of scrappy 30-something-year-old diplomats spent part of the evening um, sort of jerry-rigging a little program together where we... Uh, where people could donate $10 through SMS through their mobiles by texting the word Haiti to a short code. And at the time, we were like, wow, this, might, this could raise a couple hundred thousand bucks. This, you know, this, is, this could be, this is really cool. This is really innovative. And, you know, what we did uh, sort of in the hours of, after launch was we, we sort of brought all of our skills and contacts to bear to try to make this as loud as possible in social media domains. And over the course of about two weeks, we raised $35 million. So a little more than 3 million Americans donated in $10 increments um, for earthquake relief. And you know, this was a couple days work by a couple sort of mid to upper level diplomats. But it was made possible because of these very powerful information networks. It was made possible because our information networks devolve power from the nation state and large institutions to individuals and small institutions. So the only thing that would make it possible for a handful of 30-something-year-old diplomats to put together a program that raised literally tens of millions of dollars in two weeks is because people who, on their face, are relatively powerless, but who nevertheless know how to work with a measure of sophistication in our information networks can suddenly become more powerful. Um, we've seen this very, very clearly uh, over the last couple months um, in the Maghreb, in northern Africa. And I think it's, it's it's interesting with just a few weeks of hindsight, just in, and in the case of um, Tunisia, less than two months of hindsight, I think that we can draw some initial conclusions about the impact of connection technologies in the unrest there. Um, so in, in Tunisia and Egypt, thing that I want to say at the outset is that these were not, so, in, to, to my thinking, so-called Facebook or Twitter revolutions. Um, there's been a lot of ink spilled, you know, sort of pronouncing these things Twitter revolutions or pronouncing these things Facebook re revolutions, particularly in the UK press. And I, I just, I don't entirely buy that. Um, 
I, I think that at the roots of these conflicts were things tied to a lack of economic opportunity, a lack of de democracy, uh, high levels of dismay with uh, the ruling families, frustrations with corruption and such things. So I really think that that is what was at the heart of these revolutions and that point in fact they weren't social media based revolutions, they were people based revolutions. Now all of that said, I do think that connection technologies clearly did play four very powerful and important roles. Um, number one, it served as an accelerant. Uh, movement making that historically would have taken months or years, we saw compressed into a matter of weeks. So in Tunisia, for example, um, from the day that a young fruit seller set himself on fire on December 17th as an act of protest to the day that Ben Ali got on a private jet and flew to exile in Saudi Arabia was five weeks. And what's interesting is if you really dig in and you really look at the analytics and do the diagnostics, what you can see is the remarkable degree to which there was movement building and movement making taking place over social media um, that was just, that was, was compressed. And so social media may have not made the revolution successful, but they, it sure made it faster. Now, in the interest of being clear-eyed about these things, the fact that these are open platforms, the fact that the organizing was taking place over fairly commonplace media um, and co fairly, fairly commonplace social media applications also makes it all the easier for governments, security services, actors with malignant intentions to infiltrate, monitor, manipulate, surveil what happens on the platforms. Um, nevertheless, what we clearly saw in Tunisia and um, and in Egypt was that the will of the people was certainly greater than the nation state's ability to exploit them using that media. Number two, we're seeing changing information environments. Um, one, of the, one of the fascinating things about Tunisia and Egypt is to see the degree to which people brought a very high, very high level of sophistication. Even people of very low incomes and low literacy levels brought an, brought an enormous amount of sophistication to what the information environment was uh, in their country. And this personally doesn't surprise me that much. When I started my NGO, I started it in a basement um, 11 years ago, and there were sort of there were three of us with less than a pound in our pocket. We had nothing but, you know, sort of a hope, we, we had nothing but hope. We sort of had an, a concept in search of an idea um, that we could use technology as a way of helping, of helping people in poverty build assets and enter the economic mainstream. And part of how we grew from being, you know, three people in a basement with no money and no rich uncles and no fancy contacts over the course of eight years into a global NGO with programs in 15 countries and on four continents, continents was not because we were so smart or we were so sophisticated, but it was because the people themselves to whom we were helping to bring the tools, they were so sophisticated about them. So the growth of my nonprofit over eight years was built on this sort of anti-paternalism um, about the use of technology in low-income communities. It presumed that people of low incomes and of relatively limited literacy um, in technology-scarce environments, if exposed to these tools, would adopt and adapt them rather quickly for their purposes. That is how you know, I went from being one of three schmucks in a basement to running a very large global organization in eight years. It was because of the people who were actually driving these programs. And we saw this in Tunisia and Egypt, that, the, that, that citizens themselves were remarkably sophisticated about their information environment, and they then 
could help drive um, the organizing, and they could help they could help drive the media coverage um, that was taking place there. I would argue that the roots of this ha have actually nothing to do, the roots of this have actually nothing to do with the internet itself, but rather in pan-Arab satellite television. So Al Jazeera, BBC, CNN, when those, when, when satellite television began to become available um, a few decades ago in the Middle East, that had an impact of, of, of significantly broadening the information environment in these countries. Uh, I was doing a DVC with a group of Moroccan bloggers uh, the week before last, and uh, one, a, a Moroccan librarian, told me that, that um, pan-Arab satellite television opened a wider world to the people of the Middle East and social media and the internet then gave them the means to do something about it. And so what's interesting to me is to see the degree to which the information environment in the Maghreb has been significantly disrupted first by pan-Arab satellite television, then by the use of these tools. And in Tunisia, for example, very few people were paying attention at all to what was going on in the first weeks of the conflict. Um, and what eventually happened was it became so big within social, social media spaces that um, mainstream media, principally France 24 and Al Jazeera, then picked up on it and then drew from uh, the social media as, as primary content for its reporting. Uh, thing three, the third thing that I think we can now fairly definitively assert, um, connection technologies and social media make weak ties stronger. Uh, there's been a lot of research about this, and um, what's clear is that part of what brought the Western-educated 27-year-old digital hipster shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with a 57-year-old me mem uh, member of the Muslim Brotherhood shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder in Tahrir Square were some initial connections made online that then increased the likelihood of their connecting offline. So. Social media makes weak ties stronger. Now, I'm now a little bit skeptical that the weak ties made strong for the purposes of exercising dissent, I'm, I, I'm, I don't know if that will hold into the context of governance. So the 27-year-old Western-educated digital hipster and the 57-year-old member of the Muslim Brotherhood, who frankly didn't have much in common other than a disdain for the Mubarak regime, May have been helped to bring, may have been brought together for the purposes of exercising dissent to the, the degree to which these tools can use to reinforce those bonds or to contribute to governance. I think is is very much an open question. Uh, fourth and finally, uh, the Che Guevara of the 21st century is the network. It's no longer necessary for there to be a single charismatic figure inspiring and organizing the masses. Um, raise your hand if you can give me the name of one of the revolutionary leaders in Tunisia itself. I asked that exact same question to 185 ambassadors. Zero hands went up. The revolution in Tunisia did not have a Che Guevara-like revolutionary figure. This was only made possible by social media, period. Because what that allowed for was connection and coordination and leadership such as it was exercised at the nodal versus truly individual level. Now, this is not to say that there will not be, you know, charismatic revolutionary figures in the future. There certainly will be. But the evidence in Tunisia is clearly that there was not. In Egypt, I would argue, I, I think it's, it's a bridge too far to say it was leaderless. I don't think it was necessarily leaderless. But I think one can clearly assert that leadership was distributed. And I think that, you know, if you look at what Wayo Gonim said, I think it was very compelling. You know, there was a moment where everybody 
people wanted to build a statue to Wael Ghanim and sort of pronounce him the leader of the Egyptian revolution. And he said, I was not a leader. Don't call me a leader. The network was the leader. And so this is something that is absolutely going to drive our diplomats and our foreign, poli our foreign policy practitioners bananas. Um, because this, the leaderlessness of these movements is a unique phenomenon. And what that's going to now do is it's going to create some remarkable challenges as Tunisians and Egyptians seek to build a future that is stronger and more, more inclusive and includes greater promise than their past. Um, there's a leadership vacuum. And anybody who understands power understands that leadership and power vacuums will get filled. And not necessarily by people with ideals of Jeffersonian democracy, and not necessarily by people who were leaders within the dissent movement. We don't know who those leaders are going to be. We don't know who is going to um, be the next leadership class within these countries. What we do know is that the leadership was not, was not, has not, and likely will not be anointed by the dissent movements themselves. So within the context of this, what's the State Department doing? Um, I just want to speak very briefly about some of what we're doing. Um, we are trying to harness these tools as best we can. Um, I, I give Hillary Clinton a lot of credit. Um, she has been very forward about the degree to which her presidential campaign uh, did not compete well um, relative to the presidential campaign that I worked for, uh, Barack Obama's. And that is part of, I'm not saying anything she hasn't said with the microphone herself. Um, and that is part of why she created my role and it's part of why she has been so bloody aggressive from the moment she became Secretary of State herself and said, you know what, I may not, th these tools may not be native to me, but I, I understand that they're important and I understand that 50% of the world's population is under 30, so we better figure it out and get ahead. And part of what I respect about her so much and part of why I'm having so much fun in this role is she wants us to make mistakes of commission rather than omission. She wants us to try things that historically get, get outside of the comfort zone of the white shirt, red tie, pinstripe diplomat. She's, let's, she's like, let's try some new things. And um, most of them have worked. So, you know, one recent example of this was, was two weeks ago um, where by remembering as we try to do in the Obama administration, that we have one mouth, but we have two ears. Um, that social media can be a great way of not just talking at people and saying, here is our American message, you know, be influenced. Um, it's actually a great way to listen. And one of the things that we learned by listening to what people were saying over social media was that Egyptian youth had real questions, um, questions is the diplomatic way of putting it, um, about the United States and 30 years of support for the Mubarak regime and questioning our role in the revolution. And having learned this by listening and trying to exercise the more humble foreign policy that we're seeking to exercise under the leadership of Barack Obama, um, what, what Secretary Clinton said was, you know what, I want to talk to these Egyptian youth. And she's like, I want the toughest questions from the, you know, I don't care if they're anti-American, I just, let's do this. And you know, at this point, this is where people can become enormously skeptical. Oh, you're gonna, you're gonna pick the questions. Oh, you're gonna pick, you know, the cherry-cheeked, you know, cute kid out of the audience to ask the proper question. And so what we did was something that was considered, you know, kind of edgy for, you know, our diplomats, which is, we handed all control over to an Egyptian social media company called Masrawi.com. And you know, that's a point that I want to make is that the world is far more than just Facebook and Twitter. Um, Masrawi.com, we said, look, you can have total control 
over half an hour of Hillary Clinton's time live. Our only precondition is that we want the questions that you ask to come from Egyptian youth. We, we don't need to see the questions. They can be as angry and as uncensored in tone as you want them to be. You, Maswawi.com, are in charge. And she did this. And they asked some really tough questions. And it was a great session. And she came out of that saying, we have to do more. And the next day, in a meeting with all of her assistant secretaries, which, you know, all the fancy, important, impressive people, ordered them to figure out ways in which they could engage more aggressively using these tools. Um, so, you know, at the State Department, we, uh, you know, we're not perfect um, by a long stretch in terms of our use of social media, in terms of our use of connection technologies. But what we have been is very edgy. And what we have chosen to do is make mistakes such as we have of commission rather than omission and try to do so not to conduct foreign policy as perhaps it's perhaps as its caricature, which is, you know, getting a message out, influencing audiences, you know, commanding and controlling things, but as a way of listening and as a way of, to the extent that we do want to need messages to get out there, to do so with it being completely disintermediated by the mainstream media so that it reaches people in their native language, you know, sort of unfiltered and real. And as such, people may not always like what we have to say, but it'll be coming directly to them and in our own voices. Um, so with that, uh, I'll shut up and would welcome taking some questions if any of you have any. Thank you. Thanks very much, Alec. Um, completely forgot to say that um, if, like me, you're, you're, you're tweeting this event, mm -hmm. we need a hashtag. Uh, I've gone for statecraft. So if anybody's been tweeting, would they mind retweeting all their stuff again? Um, but uh, obviously, feel free. Um, should we please take some questions? Uh, and, and even though I'm a diplomat, please feel free to be undiplomatic and, 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 and ask your most uncensored questions. I may not always have the most satisfying answers, but if you have burning questions, please do feel free to ask them. I'm sure they will. Do you want yes. to take them? Uh, sure. Yes, sir. I'd like to go back to Hillary Clinton's internet freedom speech where she made a lot of references to the Cold War. Uh -huh. Early on, I thought it was an error, but more recently in a testimony to the U.S. Congress, she said that the United States is losing the information war. It appears Americans are very fond of this metaphor. So you have the war on drugs, the war on terror. And I just wanted to know, who is the enemy? Is it China? Is it dictatorial regimes? Or so on and so forth. Because if you portray others as the enemy in some sort of war, then they would be more resistant to all of these technologies that you're trying to bring forth. Yeah, you know what? That's a really good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, who is the war against? I mean, I think the obvious case of, you know, I think obviously we are at, you know, war with violent, ex you know, with violent extremists. You know, we are, um, fight, you know, we have a, we're fighting a war in Afghanistan. But, you know, that your question, I think, is actually a little bit more existential than that. And I'm not actually going to pretend to have a good answer to it. Um, but I'm going to think about it this evening over a pint. Um, <laughs> Let me say something about the Cold War illusions. One of the reasons why I really like Hillary Clinton um, is she, does, she doesn't take what sort of me and my digital hipsters say and write and do and then sort of spits it out reading from a teleprompter. She internalizes this content and makes it her own. And her, in her first internet freedom speech where she likened blogs to Samizdat, and when she talked about regimes throwing up information blockades, keeping people from information and from personal communications, I think that reflects the sweep 
of her personal professional career. You know, she, she understands blogs as a 21st century version of Samistat. And I actually think that's a fairly compelling illusion. Um, I also think that, you know, if you look, if you think about our internet freedom agenda, you know, look, we went head to head with the Ben Ali regime, much to their chagrin. Look, they, the Tunisian government was an ally of ours. And when they hacked those 1.4 million Facebook accounts, and when they shut down websites, I, I don't think that they necessarily expected to hear from us. But they did. We convoked their ambassador. We hauled him in. We, we dealt with this in, tu in Tunis. You know, we dealt with it both publicly and privately. So in this case, I think, instead of, perhaps the war is less another nation state, but rather it is any government that would seek to, you know, close down mobile networks or block off big chunks of the internet? Um, it's a very good question. Uh, yes, in the green jacket. Thank you for your talk. I just wonder, you know, what effect this is really having and just, in, in fact, alluding to one of the points you just made about the President of Tunisia. And basically, the problem with the State Department, problem with, with the President and, and his predecessor is obviously he's stuck with a policy that has been ongoing, a strategy that's been ongoing, and I think most of the Arabs in the street, I hate that phrase, uh, probably think that uh, basically America is just always in favor of stability rather than democracy, mm -hmm. in favor of oil rather than of them. The Cairo speech and the difference between the hyped up Cairo speech and actually continuing to allow Israeli settlements. And then, of course, you've got this current split between state and defense, which is all over our papers internationally, as to what you do about Libya. I mean, it's all very well using all these community, these uh, technologies, but uh, if you appear to be dithering over a strategy, it doesn't really make much difference, does it? Yeah, so going back to what I said at the beginning, this isn't about technology, this is about foreign policy. So the only extent to which any of this is going to be successful is to the extent that it is tethered to a successful foreign policy. Now, you know, I won't concede that, you know, we were on the wrong side with Tunisia, you know, point in fact, you know, when we, when and how we intervened proved to be very meaningful, and in Egypt, when and how we intervened proved to be very meaningful. Um, what we have done and what we're going to continue to do is on a set of values that we have, values like the freedom of expression, the freedom of association, the freedom of the press. What our intention is and what our actual practice is, what I actually do when I get to work, is uh, hold our allies to the same standard as the countries with whom we have, agree with whom we have disagreements. Um, so going back to the first internet freedom speech that Secretary Clinton gave on January 20th, 2010, you know, she singled out four, four countries and she really banged on them. And two of those four countries happened to be Egypt and Tunisia, who happened to be allies. Um, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain are allies of the United States, yet on the issue of internet freedom, we are going to have our disagreements with them and we're going to voice our disagreements. You know, it just so happens that a lot of the time most of the ink is spilled um, and most of the fancy articles are written about these issues in the context of Iran or of China. It's much less, much less sexy to write an article about disagreements that we're having with Turkey or Morocco or Thailand. But I think it's very important for us as diplomats if we're going to have a measure of integrity um, and if we are going to advocate for internet freedom, I think it's very important that we advocate with our allies as strongly um, as we do with the countries like Syria and Iran with whom we more often than not have difficulties. Um, next question. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, thank you very much, first of all. And I think uh, you, you did a really excellent job of pointing out I mean, how these technologies can be used for good, but I think it's also really important to remember that the, technology them, the technologies themselves are neutral. And mm -hmm. I think you mentioned I say that all the time. Yep. Right. I mean, I think uh, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, how governments can use them to repress their citizens as well. Yep. But I think um, another issue is, I mean, sort of this, you know, diffusion and proliferation. 
how its impact on you know, things like terrorism, its impact on things like crime, um, and how this makes it much more difficult to combat these. Um, yep. So I don't know if you have some views on yeah, you know, I mean, where look, to take that fight. Yeah, I mean, look, this is um, you know a lot of a lot of people characterize me as a, a so-called cyber utopian. I don't, I haven't actually met a cyber utopian yet, um, but I would love to be one. Um, because the world would be far better if that were the case. But unfortunately, in my job, I do see a lot of the negative that technology helps make possible. Here's what technology does. Technology amplifies the existing sociologies on the ground. If what people want is democracy and to overthrow a dictatorial regime, if that's what people want, technology will give them tools to do that. If people want a closed theocracy though, technology can be used to help create a more closed theocracy. If um, people with, with, any, with any intention can use these tools to great effect. If you go to a, an internet cafe in South Beirut, you can see how video games have been modified by Hezbollah so that instead of shooting um, monsters and aliens, you're shooting Israeli soldiers. Um, so yeah, I mean, th these tools can be used by anybody. They are value neutral. The Mumbai bombing was planned using Skype and Google Maps. Um, so that, you know, that's why you do have to be clear-eyed about these tools, but I would argue net-net, are these tools better for dictators or dissent? I think that that question has now been almost entirely resolved. Um, I think that you couldn't point to two, two authoritarian leaders who were in stronger positions as recently as four months ago than Ben Ali and Hosni Mubarak. So the fact that Ben Ali and Hosni Mubarak, um, with all of their capabilities, there were 230,000 employees of the Interior Ministry in Tunisia. The Egyptian secret services are enor were enormously large and enormously powerful. Still, networks of highly motivated individuals prove to be stronger than the security services. Will that always be the case? I don't know. Um, you know, it remains to be seen what happens in, you know, within other strong nations when this is tested, but the recent evidence is, is fairly rem remarkable. Is there a couple people in the back there? Uh, thanks very much for coming uh, once again. You've mentioned a, a bit about the State Department's promotion of internet freedom abroad, but I wonder if we could touch on it a bit more. Um, recently there was uh, reason to think that the State Department's funding for sensor-busting technologies was going to be taken away because it's not being spent fast enough, uh, which is one large initiative that the Congress focused on last year for promoting internet freedom. Um, around the world. How does that affect your um, responsibilities and what you're trying to achieve? Do you think that funding would be taken away? And what are the specific projects that the State Department is working on yep. um, with that, that funding to, to bust through sensors around the world? Yeah, so the, to give some additional context to the question, the Congress allocated $30 million um, to be given away in grants for um, things to protect and promote internet freedom. We have, 18, we have a human rights bureau that administers those grants. I don't actually get involved in the grant process, but we're nine months into the 18 months, and people want us to f spend the money faster. So, they, so there are some who are saying that the money should go to what's called the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which doesn't necessarily have the political, which is untethered to the political constraints that we at the State Department have. What's really behind that, in part, is some China bashing. Um, there is a group of, you know, there's a group of Republican senators who want us to take all $30 million, put it all into proxy and circumvention technologies in China. That's what's behind that. Um, what we want to do is focus on internet freedom in 194 countries. And we don't want it all to go into proxy and circumvention technology. We want it to go into, you know, training bloggers how to stay safe on life, uh, stay safe online. You know, we want it to go into 
things beyond just sort of the hard tech. So there is a, at the end of the day, most things in Washington can come down to a Democrats versus Republicans, liberals versus conservatives. And this is one of those things where a group of Republican senators who um, have very strong feelings about China want us to spend the money a very specific way, and our process is a little different. There's another gentleman who's had his hand up in the back. Uh, thank you. Uh, I was not going to ask a question, but when you touched on values, uh, I thought might as well. Uh, I actually find it quite... Uh, uh, United States government is the biggest supporter of the dictators in the Middle East, right? Across the board, right? So Hosni Mubarak, all of these people, you fund them. And uh, it's quite ironic that you... I mean, what about extraordinary rendition, CIA secret jails, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, torture? Come on, right? <laughs> So, I'll, I'll answer each of those in succession now. Look, Barack Obama was elected president for a reason. And I think that he was elected in part because the American people wanted a different foreign policy. Um, I would be very, 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 very surprised if there were an Abu Ghraib on Barack, on Barack Obama's watch. I would be, I'll just leave it at that. I mean, we are, you know, I, you know, I cannot disavow uh, my country's history, and it's even very recent history. It's something we all live with and we all work with, and I got news for you, my job would be a lot easier if, you know, we didn't have, if we were not tied to some of those things that you mentioned. Um, I'm very hopeful about the future. And I think, th and, and part of why I'm hopeful is because even though change doesn't happen overnight, I think that there's been a very significant change in both the tone and conduct of our foreign policy. Um, so I, 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 don't I don't always feel great about our past, but I feel good about our future. Uh, yes, up front. Um, I'm just curious, um, this increasing potency in connection technologies, mm -hmm. how do you see that affecting more authoritarian regimes like China? Yeah, so a couple weeks ago, Secretary Clinton describes something she calls the dictator's dilemma. And essentially it's this. What she believes is that you can't just have a social internet, an economic internet, and a political internet and sort of pick and choose which one you want. Did, did I do that? Is that me getting the hook? You guys want me out of here? Um, I'll wait just a second. Um, One second. It's me running out the clock. There we go. Um, what, what, when Hillary Clinton described the dictator's dilemma, what she said is that governments for a period in time can seek to control their citizens' access to information, but eventually it will keep up with, it, it will catch up with them. Now, I personally take uh, a fairly distinct view of China as it relates to this. China has going on a half billion internet users. And it has a quarter billion, 250 million internet users under the age of 25. What I believe is that those citizens of China under the age of 25 are going to determine what the internet looks like in the future of China. Um, you know, look, the United States will continue to um, speak out, you know, when we have problems with uh, how they manage the internet. Uh, you, you can't search for my name in Beijing and get a, and get a result. They don't like me very much. Um, you can't search for the words Hillary Clinton now and get a result um, after, the, uh, after her last internet freedom speech. Um, they're going to, you know, they're repackaging their algorithms so as to, to filter out all of those things where she's talking about an open internet. So look, we're going to continue to speak 
speak up and speak out about that which we think is wrong. But I actually think that our words are going to have less impact on what the future of the internet looks like in China than those half a billion and growing Chinese who are on the network now. Now, if I were to take sort of a Western-centric perspective on what that was, I would say, oh, and they're going to pick what we want. Um, it's going to look like the American or the UK internet. I don't know. I mean, in a manner of speaking, I hope so. But if you look back at thousands of years of Chinese history, what you, see, what you can see is that you know, they will realize a future of their own design. And so I think that the communications networks of the future in China will reflect the wants and the designs of the digital natives who are growing up digital there now and in 5, 10, and 15 years will be in increasing positions of authority. Got time for two more questions. Gentleman in the back. Yes, good evening and thanks for your speech. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned several times the importance of uh, freedom of expression, freedom of the internet. Yep. Um, nevertheless, you carefully dodged the issue of WikiLeaks. Um, and I'd like Yours is the first question about WikiLeaks. I haven't dodged anything. <laughs> Um, on your, in your presentation. I, I, I anyway. can dodge it now if, they, if you would like me to, but I haven't dodged anything yet. You, you did at the beginning when you okay. said you didn't know what you were, when it was. Um, uh, so I was wondering if you had any comments on the issue and the paradox between the line that was uh, that of the State Department and uh, what you're just mentioning right now about the uh, importance of freedom of expression. Yep. So first of all, Hillary Clinton's a lot smarter than I am. And she gave a speech a couple weeks ago um, on internet freedom where she spoke at fairly detailed length about this. Um, what I can say, here's, here are my favorite three words, ongoing active investigation. So what that means is that political types like myself are necessarily constrained from saying too much lest we interfere with what is supposed to be an independent legal proceeding. Um, now that said, I, what I do want to do is debunk some myths um, because there's been a lot of crap journalism, particularly in the UK, about this. Um, thi yeah, thing, thing one. Some people believe that um, the Obama administration you know, contacted Amazon and PayPal and such things and got them to take down WikiLeaks and to stop taking payments from, from WikiLeaks. That is not true. It's not. It's a fiction. Um, yet there has been an enormous amount of ink spilled in the blogosphere and social media and in newspapers in the UK. It's not true. Um, and you know, Hillary Clinton made that clear in her most recent speech, where she said, "Let me be clear, comma, the Obama administration has not called, has not asked for companies." Da, 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 da. Now. We have, it is true that certain politicians and pundits exercised their freedom of expression and asked them to do so. We have 535 members of Congress, one of whom called Amazon, asked them to take it down, and they did. That cannot be attached to the Obama administration. They are 535 members of Congress. This was a member of another political party, and, you know. Do you think it's helpful? Yeah. So, and did you, but, uh, did you think it was a helpful phone call then? Uh, I am going to reserve comment <laughs> and draw your conclusions as you see fit. Look, we spoke. It's not true, um, and and other people are 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 all wrapped up um, about this investigation. Here's what we believe to be true: we believe it to be true that 250,000 alleged cables. Um, suddenly are appearing on the internet. Now, for that to have been the case, um, it would have, have to have been extracted from someplace. It is reasonable, therefore, to presume that there should be some investigative process that takes place. That investigative process is ongo ongoing. And so what I would do is draw conclusions from what actually happens. You see what I'm saying? Um, and I will be delighted when this process is over and uh, I can speak without the constraints of an active, ongoing investigation. Um, one more question. Yes, ma'am. 
Um, your presentation pretty much um, laid out how uh, these sort of uh, social in a, um, innovative ideas um, have helped, um, for, have done greater purpose for these societies that are struggling um, with their governments. And my fear is that these are fairly new movements that pretty much originated, I would assume, in 2009, especially after the... Uh, I mean, the first incident um, that this appeared was um, in 2009 when Iranian election was rigged and that sort of um, thing went on. Anyway, um, so what I'm trying to say is that it's a fairly a new uh, uh, mechanism for people to use to show their, uh, their uh, demonstration against their governments. And what happens after this? Because um, maybe they succeeded because it's new and nobody knows how to deal with them yep. at the moment. But what, is, what do you think um, that should be done in order for this to continue, um, have the successes that, that it has had so far? It's a great question. Um, I mean, so your fear is very similar to my own, which is that it, it, it is reasonable to presume that there are autocratic leaders the world around who've said, you know what, my friend Hosni, my friend Ben Ali, you know, they were pretty strong. and Look what these tools did to them. I'd better get these things under control in my country. Um, and, with, and with the benefit of more time and with the benefit of their being able to invest in technologies or develop policies that throttle back their citizens' ability to exercise the same kind of dissent that was exercised in Sidi Bouzid, in Tunis, in Suez, in Alexandria, in Cairo, you know, you know, it, it's, these governments are going to make choices, and I have a feeling that some of them might be choices that are not in the interests of their citizens. This is why it's so important for us to have an internet freedom agenda. Anticipating that governments are going to do this. It's precisely at moments when revolution, when dissent is not being openly exercised that we need to engage aggressively with countries to make sure that they keep their networks open and to make sure that they comport themselves in a way that has a set of international norms um, that allow for an open internet. Now, having said that, here's a big problem going forward. I don't know that we have those international norms yet. It's all very ad hoc. Um, you know, we hear about what the Tunisians do and we take action based on what the Tunisians do. And, you know, we hear about what the Egyptians are doing and we take action based on what the Egyptians are doing. And the EU tries to catch up and maybe do something. And Her Majesty's government, oh, you know, we agree with this too. Let's get into this. But there's no, there's no framework of international norms around the internet in the same manner in which there are for other issues tied to human rights. So one of the things that the Secretary of State called for in her last internet freedom speech is for the global community um, to establish a set of norms around the internet including those things that are tied to human rights so that when bad things happen or governments do things that are irresponsible, instead of just the United States or instead of just 10 Downing or instead of you know, three or four countries speaking out, the global community condemns it. I also think this is necessary because the private sector plays such a prominent role in this. This is not just about nation states. Um, when we talk about Facebook and Twitter and Google and all, these are, these are companies who are principally concerned with profit and loss and who are principally accountable to shareholders as opposed to citizens such as they are. And so I think that there's a need for international norms too so that it doesn't just inform what is right and reasonable for, for how governments behave. But I also think that there need to be international norms to help establish what is right and what is reasonable behavior for companies. 
because these companies play a very significant role in all of this. Um, so the future is, you know, we could give lots of internet yay speeches, um, but I think the future is actually going to be far more complicated where we actually have to get into, you know, sort of the, the, the natty work of, of having a framework of rights built around the internet that the global community agrees to. And when I say the global community, I don't just mean Western Europe and the United States. I mean much of the rest of the world, those countries that value an open internet. Um, so that's what I'm going to do when I get back to the United States. Thank you all. I'm sure you agree that was a, uh, a spellbinding hour or so, and it remarkably open for a, a serving diplomat. Uh, and I think he's raised a hell of a lot of issues for us to continue a conversation, which we'll be doing at Polis, and I hope you can join us in that. And I also hope that uh, we can get Alec back perhaps in uh, 12 months to see where exactly those issues are going, and possibly you might even bring the boss with you. Um, <laughs> Shall we here for the state visit? Exactly, exactly. So, uh, just again, I think that was a fantastic. Keep following on Twitter. There's a fascinating reactions on Twitter to this as well. Um, I'm very grateful that you spent the time oh, with us. That was a wonderful fun. speech. Thanks a lot. Thank guys. you all.